0: Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but (laughs) but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and said to them, Show me a denarius. (coughs) Whose Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But, marveling at his answer, they became silent. The Word of the Lord.
1: When I was in 12th grade, I was in my government class here at Madison High School and got into an argument, a debate that was a little bit politicized at the time. It was one of those hot button issues. I got into the argument directly with the teacher who was trashing something I believed and then I kind of stood up for it and I argued back with the teacher. And eventually the teacher was just being a little bit awful, mean and directly at me. Um, And so I actually just, I stood up and I said, I don't need to hear this anymore. You don't need to talk to me like this. And I walked out of the classroom. I just left. Um, He was being, uh, he was being a donkey, let's say. I stewed in my self-righteousness, later realizing I was being a bit of a donkey myself. (laughs) Years later, as if I didn't learn the lesson, I was with some mates at a restaurant, we'll call it, in England, having a discussion that turned into a debate, that turned into an argument. And eventually, my arguments were so kind of strong and strong-willed politically that one of the guys said, You know, the problem with all Christians is you guys are all, and what he said stung so badly. And I remember days later thinking what a donkey I was. You know, if you get into political, and not just political worldview debates, they always end up being a zero-sum game. It's always actually about power and control, who's in and who's out. Think about it, actually the best of any rebellion or revolt is about them being in power and getting them out so we can be in power. So right in Russia, there was this monarchy with czars and these people came in and threw them out so that they could be dictators under communism. In 1776, we got rid of that evil British monarch in order to establish our own version of for the people who are just like us, landowning, rich, white, Europeans. It's always an exchange, but here's what ends up happening is the exchange is once we get them out of power, then everything will be good for all the people. And by all the people we mean all the people who are like us or who agree with us. And that's essentially what every political vote is about. 92, 2000, 2008, 2016. Let's get them out so we can be in and the people like us. Jesus didn't come to bring a new administration in the same way. His administration, his kingdom was upside down. In his view, everyone is out, but anybody can be in. The key is to realize it and surrender. This is essentially what Jesus is getting at in this very famous passage in Luke chapter 20. So the setup is this, Jesus is in the temple, it's in his final week of life, and he's having debates with the religious and political leaders. And there was no difference there between the religious and political leaders of that day and age. And it's actually not much different today or anywhere else around the world. And they did not like him. There was something about him that was dangerous, that was troublesome. So they asked him a question that's going to get him into political trouble. They knew it was the sort of hot-button issue that you couldn't answer well without causing somebody to be angry at you. So here's the question they ask in verse 22. Is it lawful to give the tribute to Caesar or not? Now the tribute to Caesar is actually a technical term for a specific tax. So Rome was in control of this whole vast empire, including Israel at this time. And they had a lot of taxes, but most of the taxes were on goods and services, like when they add the sales tax at the register. So there was taxes on goods being brought into a city or out or even travel. But the poll tax or census tax was completely hateful. It was basically every adult who was in subjugation to Rome, not Roman citizens, everyone else, had to pay an annual tax of one denarius, which is one day's wage. And basically it was an annual reminder that you are under Rome's authority. We're in control and you are not. We're gonna tax your very person. The religious leaders knew how hateful this tax was because 30 years earlier, in AD 6, a guy named Judas from Galilee. This is recorded in Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. He records that a guy named Judas, the Galilean, when the census was first brought in, and the census meaning all of you have to go and register in your hometown, so we know you exist. This kind of reminds you of another story about Jesus, right? So in AD 6, go and register in your hometown so that you can be taxed, and this started the poll tax, the annual one denarius tax on every adult Judas the Galilean gathers a band of people. They go to Jerusalem and they say, we're not going to pay this tax. They raise up arms. They fight the Romans. They drive them out of the temple area, cleansing the temple and declaring a new administration and a new kingdom under Yahweh, not under Caesar, is here. We will not accept this tax. We are not subjugated to Caesar. We are only subject to Yahweh, to God. And what happened to Judas the Galilean and his followers? It's recorded in Acts 5.37 when Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a religious leader, said, hey, remember what happened to Judas the Galilean. He gathered up a band of people, tried to start an insurrection. He was arrested, he was executed, and his followers have scattered. 30 years later, a guy named Jesus from Nazareth, also in Galilee, gathers a band of people, disciples, starts proclaiming a new kingdom is here, the kingdom of God is here. Then he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, reenacting the coronation ceremony of Solomon, basically saying, I'm the new son of David, the new king that is here. He rides into the temple area, gets off of his donkey, and begins scattering all the money changers, cleansing the temple of all the evil that's being done symbolically. What is he doing? The religious and political leaders know that he's on the edge of doing the same thing Judas the Galilean did 30 years earlier. They know what's next. And they press him on his kingdom purposes. Now, you have to remember the whole kingdom idea in the Old Testament and moving into first century Israel. We've talked about it here numerous times, but it was a big part of the self understanding of the people of Israel going into the first century. So they were God's covenant people who'd chosen them. With the Exodus, he brings them out and establishes them as a nation under David and then Solomon and then the kings. But eventually they're driven into exile, and in that period of exile is when all the prophets write. And prophets like Daniel began prophesying that one day, all of them in subjugation at this time to Babylon, and all of them driven away from the, the, the nation of Israel would return because God would return. And when God came again, when God showed up bringing his anointed one, he would bring vengeance and justice on the, on the people of Israel's enemies. He would restore them to their land, and he would establish a kingdom with them as his people. For hundreds of years, This was the hope of Israel. And yet for hundreds of years, they moved from being under the the thumb of Babylon to the thumb of another empire to the thumb of the Romans in the first century. Where are you, God? When are you going to come? Their vision was that one day God would show up. And through his anointed leader, he would drive out the Romans, kill them, and establish the new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So the religious and political leaders say, Jesus, is this what you're doing? They they say, should we pay the tax to Caesar or not? Yes or no? There's not like fudge room on this. Should we pay it or should we not? What kind of insurrection are you leading, Jesus? Jesus. You keep talking about the kingdom and you claim you're a king. We saw you ride into Jerusalem. That's the kingly sort of thing. So inaugurate your administration. Take up your throne, your highness. It's a trap, right? If he says, no, do not pay the tax to Caesar. We don't owe allegiance to him. Don't pay the tax to Caesar. He will be declaring himself in rebellion. He will be arrested and executed by the Romans. If, on the other hand, he says, oh, no, 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 go ahead and pay the tax. I never said anything about not paying taxes to Caesar while the Roman guards are standing around. Go ahead and pay the tax. If he says yes, he will publicly be shown as a cowardly fraud. Filled with shame, the people would reject him. All this popularity would go out the door. What is Jesus' response? Something totally different. He says, show me a denarius. Verse 24, whose inscription is on it? And they responded, Caesar's. Notice the first thing he has to do. Show me a denarius. He doesn't have one himself. One day's wage, that much wealth is not in his pocket. Very faithful Jews would not carry them because they had a picture of Caesar on it and it was idolatrous but these religious and political leaders happen to have one. They have means, they have wealth, they've accepted Rome's rule simply by saying, show me, he reveals what he's about. Whose inscription is on it? Well, it was Caesar's, but actually it said something very specific. You can actually find these in, um, in uh, museums, that's what they're called. Um, They say, a denarius says, in this day and age, Tiberius was the the Caesar, he was the Augustus, so it was a picture of Tiberius wearing a crown, and it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the back side, it said, chief priest. So summarizing, here's a picture on this coin of Caesar, and it says, Tiberius, the king, Son of God, chief priest. Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to him. Basically, give back to him. Return to him what belongs to him. All the denarii were imprinted on silver. The silver actually all belonged to Caesar. It was Caesar's money with Caesar's imprint on it. Give it back to him. What do you want with his stuff? Return it to him. But, verse 25, the things that are God's, give to God. Kind of running the parallel on what is God's likeness imprinted. Genesis 127 says, in the image of God, he created them. The image of God he made us, male and female. He imprinted us with his divine image. That coin may have Caesar. You have God. Give to Caesar whatever belongs to him, but give to God what belongs to him. Jesus doesn't answer how. (laughs) Okay, so what do we need to do, Jesus? He simply lets it stay. But what he's doing is he's overturning their priorities their values, their understanding of the kingdom, their expectations on what he's about and what he is doing. You know, every culture has a vision of the kingdom. They might not call it that, but every culture has a vision of the good life, and you could actually in some ways talk about it as heaven, salvation. Here's how you know you are here, how you've arrived. Every culture has goals, values, and priorities that define its kingdom. In the ancient Near Eastern culture that Judaism fit into in the first century, that Jesus was walking around in, but it wasn't just Israel. In the ancient Near East, it was status and power. Status basically was an honor and shame society, and you wanted to have honor, status, be higher than other people. You wanted to have a place in the village and in the nation. Title, status, honor and power. You wanted to be part of the in-group, connected to those who are powerful, and have all the authority and wealth that went with it. This is exactly what Jesus' questioners fit. They fit the cultural kingdom of their day. In verse 46 and 47, Jesus says, beware of the religious and political leaders who like to walk around in long robes love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' savings and make long prayers. Who is buying in to the culture and values of the kingdom of that day? I knew a guy like this in high school He was, uh, when we would go to campaigners, which was the Young Life kind of Bible study, it was kind of like our Beyond, actually. Beyond is a combination of our youth group and Young Life campaigners. So I was involved in Young Life campaigners. Oakton and Madison High School shared that. And there was a guy who was always this sort of guy, the description here, like the long robes. Well, not really long robes, but um, if you had a question, like the leader had a question talking about the Bible, he was always the first to raise his hand. And one time we were praying, um, being directed to pray, which sometimes happens in these settings, and it was uh, while our eyes are closed, if anyone wants to pray aloud, pray one word, just one word describing God. So, you know, kids are praying and it's like merciful and just and kind and loving and good. And this kid says, omnipotent. Seriously. Seriously. That kid was me. Um. I know that's how other kids thought because my good friend Brian Berry told me about it years later. He said, yeah, we didn't like you. You were the one who always raised your hand. And I remember one time we were praying and you said, omnipotent. Who did you think you were? Lovely. Status and power were the values of that ancient world. Today we have actually a different set of values. We actually don't care about status as much. Some of you do, I know, but generally we don't. There are three primary values, sociologists have pointed at this, three primary values that describe our culture, and we've talked about it here before. They are liberty, happiness, and success. Liberty is basically this, I am free to do whatever I want, do not tell me what to do. Happiness is our number one goal. The goal in life is to be happy. Surveys have shown that over 80% of of Americans think that is the number one goal in life. The purpose of life is to be happy. And the third thing, and you see it especially in Northern Virginia, DC, it's success. We are a performance and merit-based culture. You have to earn your value and you must succeed. The college you go to, the career you have, the type of family that you have, the vacations you take, you must be better than others. Autonomy happiness, and success define our culture. Now, we might pursue them under different guises. You might actually really be interested in the approval of others, or financial security, or romantic love, or a great career, or having influence, or simply just being left alone. But even in that process, we're buying into liberty, autonomy, happiness, and success. And basically, we build up our own value system that says, if I can't have this, if I lose this, then who am I? Is my life really worth living? Jesus, in this quick set of statements, as well as his entire life, overturns the values and priorities of every kingdom. Modern America, ancient Israel, and every other one. He's basically saying in his response to the religious leaders, yes, I've come to bring a kingdom, but not that kind, not with swords, not to achieve power, not to get rid of them so we can be in. It's a totally upside down sort of kingdom. You see it from the very beginning with Jesus. The very first public thing Jesus does is in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue and he begins reading from Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 was a prophecy of what would happen one day when the Lord came. And Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The poor, the prisoner. Vengeance, comfort for the morning. This is a political thing. (laughs) And Jesus says, today this is being fulfilled in your presence. And then what does he do over the next couple of years? He goes out and does the things he said he was going to do. He cares for the sick and the sinner and the outcast and the unclean that were not allowed in that culture. He challenges the powerful and invites the poor. In Luke chapter six, he gives us he the version of Sermon on the Mount in Luke, which is it starts off with blessings and woes. And basically, here's a description of his kingdom versus the kingdom of the culture. Blessed are the poor and the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hated, who are excluded. But woe to you who are rich in this day. Woe to you who are full right now. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when people speak well of you. He's saying power, status, wealth, success, approval, happiness even do not matter in my kingdom. This is insurrection language and what Jesus does is highly seditious. It is very political, but not with swords and not with power. And we see this because of his declaration in Mark 10:45, summarizing his purpose and intent. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. Jesus is a king without a denarius in his pocket. <laughs> He's a king without money, without status, without power, without success. Tim Keller, preaching on Mark 12, said, the climax of my kingdom, according to Jesus, Jesus is saying the climax of my kingdom is not when I get elected, but when I get executed. What did Jesus come to do? The description is in Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Jesus, talking about the anointed one, the Messiah. Who was he? He was somebody who was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the kind of kingship that he came to establish. He took the poverty and the rejection and the suffering and the judgment that you and I deserve so that you can have the wealth and the forgiveness and the mercy and the shalom that he deserves. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down sort of kingdom. It's not about political power or success or being in. So stop worrying about whether you have financial security or you get recognition for your achievements or whether people like you. What if you do fail in life? Or, what if you actually aren't even happy? Or can't do what you want to do? Here's the thing when you accept Jesus' claims and his upside down kingdom, you will probably lose what you think right now is most important. But you will gain what you've needed most not a kingdom, but a king. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who took our place on the cross and gave us a way to you that is not based on being in or powerful or successful, but simply admitting that we are lost and broken and poor and needy. It is by grace that you invite us in, and so we come. Amen.